I can still recall as a kid there sitting in the back of the class, the teacher's up front talking about something, but I'm looking at the clock, staring at that clock, watching each tick of the clock go by, or seemingly try and go by. It seemed as though each second was paralyzed as it approached 3 p.m. You could watch that second hand closely enough, and it's Movement becomes, it seems to me then, imperceptible. It just appeared to blink on the clock's face. It never moved. Actually, once or twice I was sure it moved backwards. How could this be? I was so longing for the moment, three o'clock to strike, the doors to be opened, to be released out of the school, ready for winter break or summer break to begin. I don't know about your experience of those school days, but throughout school time, life just seemed to drag on. And then all of a sudden, you hit warp speed, don't you? There was the mandatory school years, and then after that, it was suddenly you're on a fast track. For me, it was then seminary and marriage and then kids. And again, it was like warp speed. I was going through at light speed to my death, is what I'm figuring out now, reading this psalm. Because as I look back, honestly, even if I am, as the psalm says, gifted with some strength, my life is half over at best. And what I'm finding out, too, as I'm careening downhill, because I'm over it now, they say, my wheels are getting wobblier. Things are starting to break and starting to hurt, and they don't get repaired or bounce back. And I'm afraid now, as Aaron and I look at one another, that we'll blink and we'll be empty nesters, grandparents, and then finding shelter in some home or, too much our preference, hint, hint, children, when you hear this audio, an in-law suite. <laughs> Time's catching up with all of us. You blink and life's over, if not just already half gone. And so then the question comes, well, what am I making of my life? It's going fast. It's rushing out of here. What am I doing with it? Are you doing anything that matters? Are you doing anything that's worth remembering, that'll stay, that has staying power because it's built on something that stays? Well, to that answer, Moses is asking those same questions, watching a generation of Israel die in the wilderness, and he's asking, what matters? And so this call to reorient ourselves from Moses around the only thing, or really the only one who will last, because it's not our kids, it's not our 401ks, it's not our 501c3s and all of our good efforts, our board participations. It's not some collection of antiques, of course, sitting there in your attic. They even don't last. What will last? It's that which is built on the eternal God, our risen Christ. We must turn our eyes to Him. As the saying goes, only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. In a way, that's really Moses' word to us this morning as we turn to the text. You have one short life to live. You only got one, and it is flying out of your hands. And so live it for the only one that lasts, the eternal God. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. We see that as we look here at Psalm 90. It's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. You see that as the heading there. And of course, we are not going through the Psalms, but we're going through the book of Exodus. But we came across this statement of God in Exodus chapter 3 when God revealed Himself to Moses and says, Who are you? I am who I am. That's who God is. I am the I am. 
And we've considered the last couple of weeks, what does that mean? Before, Lord willing, next week, if the Lord tarries, gives us the time, we'll return back to Exodus 3. But we're going to look at one more aspect of what it means that God is the I am, and namely this morning that he is the eternal God. This was something that Moses learned in a way as he heard about I am who I am, and then it was something he learned as he led Israel to the brink of the promised land. Well, if we are going to live our life in the one way it can be established, the one way it can last, we must build it upon the one who lasts. And how does that begin? We need to remember who he is. And first of all, you need to remember that he is God and that he is eternal. Remember that God is eternal, verses 1 and 2. In a way, Moses just lays out for us to begin the doctrinal truth before us, that God is eternal. He always was, always is, and always will be. He's not merely everlasting. Everlasting would imply it goes on forever, forward. But when you start to think about this God, even that expression, He's from everlasting to everlasting. Well, you have to go both directions now, and our brain starts to melt. We've touched on this before, but in our case of our experience of our life, everything seems to be cause and effect, doesn't it? There's some effect in the world, well, there's some cause that caused it. And so in that way, we can imagine a beginning, a beginning to something, even a beginning of everything, whatever that first cause was that caused all the effects. And we even heard it alluded to in the prayer. The scientists have postulated a big bang. But then we ask the difficult question, well, if there was some big bang, what was there before that? In other words, who packed the TNT and lit the firecracker? We can imagine the beginning of everything, but who was there before that? And that's where we can cue the brain scramble. Now, this conundrum to even the most basic things about a life and existence, that could be quite unnerving to be confronted with it. But the answer actually proves to Moses a great and constant comfort. And it's one that Moses needed in where he was in this world, one that we need, for we are in a world that's passing away. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 90, and what you find are these two things together. We find a constant that is creates comfort, a constant comfort, but then we also find a continual change. But first, let's look at the comfort, and namely, it's God, of course. Look at verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, first, just consider that word that he is our dwelling place. This means that he is our sense or place of refuge. He is our security. He is where we find safety. Just for an easy example of this, just flip over to the next page, probably in your Bible, to Psalm 91, for that word dwelling place occurs again in verses 9 to 10 there and illustrates well what Moses here means by dwelling place. It says in Psalm 91, verse 9, "'Because you have made the Lord, Yahweh, your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge,' so you see it there already tied together." In poetic parallelism, one explaining the other, he's our dwelling place, he is our refuge. What does this mean? No evil shall be allowed to befall you, verse 10. No plague shall come near your tent. And to reference it back to Psalm 90 to say that he is our dwelling place, that means we are home with God. 
We use the expression, I'm finally home, safe and sound, safe from danger, hiding in the protection of our Heavenly Father. You know, as a young boy, I really wanted to get out of class and then to go spend the afternoon or the evening or the summer days riding around on my bike all over the neighborhood. Things were different back then, apparently, even in my own house. Things that I did as a kid going where I went, I would never let my kids do. Don't tell them. They're in the other service. But once or twice, I remember I'd be heading home after hanging out with the guys biking around the neighborhood, and I'd be heading home on my bike, but I'm getting kind of spooked now. Uh, Maybe it's getting dark, or the strange person came out of the house, and I'm sure they were going to come capture me and take me away, and all kinds of things that I think are going to happen to my kids, and that's why I don't let them go anywhere. And so, under that fear, I would just book it home, pedaling as fast as my chubby legs could go. But instead of, as normally, you know, going up the driveway and putting my bicycle in the garage, uh, in my fear, I would just ride right through the front lawn, throw my bike down, and dart inside as fast as I could. I was going in the house and looking for mom, because I knew she was my safe place. I knew if I was with mom, everything was going to be okay. That's when I was home, safe and sound. But of course, you live long enough, or you get old and mature, you see that our parents can't always protect us. They can't always even protect themselves. They are not a constant. Because eventually, and it's alluded to here at the end of verse 1, every generation passes away. That's the constant change. The comfort is the constant God, but there's still a constant change in the midst of this. And so look at the end of verse 1. It says, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. And that expression in all generations just more literally renders like this in the Hebrew, from generation to generation. One generation after the next. And why is it one generation after the next? But because one generation never sticks around all that long. That's why. Because before too long, one generation's gone and another one comes and takes its place. And again, to think about the writer here, Moses, this would have been so just visibly evident. And he looks over the people of Israel that he's shepherding. Because recall the history, of course, where we're studying in the book of Exodus. Moses is preparing to lead Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he's going to go bring them to God at Mount Sinai. And God and Israel together are going to go into the promised land as God had made the promises to Abraham long ago before that. However, as they're on then for the first time, the cup of the promised land to go in or in, Israel gets really scared. And the spies send a bad report to the people. And Israel doesn't want to go into the promised land anymore. They want to go back to Egypt, even if it means slavery. And for this, God disciplines them. And his discipline was this to Israel. You said you were going to die going into the promised land and your children would be killed going into the promised land. Well, here's what's going to happen. You are going to be disciplined and die in the wilderness, the whole generations of you. And all of your children are going to go into the promised land and enjoy the promises. Their unbelief was going to prohibit them from entering into God's promises. And it would be their children, the next generation, that would enjoy them. And then to hear this word, surely, for Moses would be so ominous, especially as he sees it start to come to pass. One by one, all of that first generation he brought out of slavery in Egypt starts to die. All his friends, all his peers, all those he'd come to know, they're going to expire, 
They're going to be buried in the desert and left behind as Israel wanders for those 40 years. And this way, a whole generation will come and go. That is what's changing. But there's one thing even then that is constant. And this is the hope of God's people in the wilderness or as they're on the promised land and about to enter in. God is constant. He's eternal. He doesn't change. He's the same. He's the same refuge and security for every generation that looks to him. He's still there. He's still with them. And that's the glorious note that we consider as Moses goes on to verse 2. This refuge, this security, this safety is there because God is always there. For He has always been there. He's the everlasting God. Look at verse 2. But before the mountains were brought forth, Moses says, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So the two statements between these verses, verse 1, you are a refuge. Verse 2, you are God always, always have been, always will be. So back to that opening question that we saw and pondered our minds. You can go back to the beginning, but here Moses goes before the beginning. He has no qualms asserting God was the one there before the beginning. He was there before the mountains were brought forth, before the earth and the world been formed. What was there first? God was. He created. He spoke. Things happened. He caused it all to happen. Now, if you're ready, got your thinking caps on, hold on to your brains because they're going to try and fall out of your ears. Well, when did God get there? If He was the one who spoke and created everything, when did God show up? Or what was God up to before then? And to that, Moses actually gives an answer, the end of verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Where was God? He was there. When did He get there? Wrong question. He always was, always is, and always will be. No matter how far back you try and go, God is there, and He always was there. Or if you try and fast forward to the very end of the world, God is still there and afterwards, if that's even a right way to say it. But understand, how is that the case? It's not merely because God is the oldest thing there is, and He's just been around the longest, so He knows everything. No, that's not how this works. Nor is it because He's just the longest-lasting thing there is. Like the never-dying battery. He just goes on and on and on. Of course, then, He knows everything. No, that's not how this works. Really, okay, this is where you hold your brains in, He exists outside of our time. And that's hard for us to understand. Well, what is time? Well, it's seconds that go on the clock that, again, kids waiting for summer vacation don't see happening. But what is time? Really, time is just a sequence of events, one after the other. And in that way, we can try and separate and pull ourselves out of time, so to speak, and look down upon it. You can think of time as like a great number line or a timeline, right? And all of the classical conversation parents are so proud because their kids are just ready to give out the whole answer about their timeline song. The point is, you separate from history and try and look over it and where history is going, you have a timeline. You can go back and think about what's happened before, or you could try and imagine where things are going because we know from the book of Revelation. 
But even though you can try and conceive of it as a timeline and being stretched out, really, for you, you are stuck in time. And unless you got Doc, Marty, and a DeLorean, you are forever stuck in the time you are in. And we know this very well. Like when we're stuck in traffic or stuck in a long line. Are you stuck in a classroom waiting for summer vacation to come? Because the thing is, though, about time, you can't speed it up. You can't slow it down. You can't press fast forward and get through the boring parts. And nor can you go through slow-mo or freeze frame it saying, oh, I wish this moment would never end. You can wish all you want, but it's coming and it's going because you are in time. Well, not so with God. He's not so bound by time. He's not constrained by it, really, because he exists outside of it. And two implications fall out of this doctrine immediately. One, it is this. You are not like God. You are so finite. You're so temporary. You're so small. You're so due to change. We grow. We get stronger. We improve. We break. We get weaker. We hurt. We age. We die. God does none of those things. He never reaches his potential because he has no more potential to have. And he's constant and he never changes. He's perfect eternally. He never has, never will. He always is. He always will be. He always was. He is the eternal God. But this also means he'll never die, he'll never expire. He'll never move out of office. He'll never get tired and fall asleep on the job. So then he will always be there for his people, no matter what time it is, for an eternity. And so we can take comfort. Whatever our place, whatever our time, whatever our circumstance, God is there. Our safety, our refuge, and our security. His presence abides. It's always there. And that too means his designs whatever they are, are never absent. Things are never out of God's control. Even then, the hardest of trials and temptations, He is there. He is in control. He is then a present refuge we can run to, even when we don't understand. Right? Because our perspective is so small, we're stuck in our moment of time. How many tragedies have you encountered that then actually turned out to be a better blessing in the end? And vice versa, how many great things happened to you that actually turned to your demise? We can think of them on a small and large scale repeatedly. Well, not with God, because He sees all. He knows all. He's working it all by His written out eternal history. And He is present always for His people in all of it. He's a refuge we can run to when we don't understand. We don't understand, God, how could this ever work for good? How could this ever be for my good or for the good of those who I love? I don't know, God, what you're doing. How can this work out? The future scares me, God. And in a way, he's saying, trust me with your future. I'm already there. I've already seen how it plays out. You see, then, even tomorrow's worries and uncertainties, they will only come to you when God is still home, your home.
if you look to him. Why? Because he's the eternal God. But in contrast to that, we need to set ourselves in the eternal God because we need to also realize that you, realize you are quite temporary in contrast. Verses 3 to 6. That is, it's hard to try and understand what it means that God is really eternal, timeless, outside of time. That's really beyond our capacity to understand. But how do we get an idea about it? Well, let's compare it to you. I think you'll have a good idea of what God is and what you are not. That really is the theme of verses 3 to 6 here of Psalm 90. God may endure forever, but we will not. Verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. God goes on. He never stops. He ever endures. He doesn't break down. He doesn't break up. But man, this God who made him, returns him to dust. The expression in the Hebrew is like he grinds him back to dust. From dust we were made, every one of us, and to dust we will one day return. Except we don't know when. But it's sure. Even though we will return to dust and in that way be blown away and gone, God never is. He's ever enduring outside of time as we know it. And that's what he illustrates here in verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. Again, trying to get a grip on what this God is like. And in contrast to us, Moses starts making some analogies. Let's think about it like this. What'd you guys, what were you up to yesterday? Think about for a moment, what did you do yesterday? Did you go to any kids' sporting events? Watch any games on TV? Do any chores around the house? Maybe you caught a meal with somebody. In view of that, let me ask you some details about those things you did. What were the scores of the games you watched? Or what, what chores did you get done? Uh, when you went to the restaurant, what did you order? What did you eat? Now, I think very likely, maybe you can't give me all those answers, but you could tell me some of them. It's not likely that you forgot them. It was just yesterday. Well, what about last Saturday, a year ago? What did you do on that day? you have any idea? Or try two years before that, or 10, or 20. Do you recall at all what you did? And unless... October 1st is your birthday or some major anniversary of some kind in your family, you have probably no clue what you did. Not with God. For God, a thousand years in His sight is like yesterday's memory. Vivid. You can imagine. Oh, yeah, 1022 AD, I remember that. Yeah, that was the year Canute was really getting into his stride there in England, establishing his monarchy. Or let's back up a thousand years before that, 22 AD. Christ himself was walking on earth as a young man in Galilee, eyeing the beginning of his ministry. Or a thousand years before that, we're about 1000 BC. Ah, yes, King David is just coming into his own as his king. A thousand years before that, we're with Abraham. A thousand years before that, we're getting with the flood and creation itself. It's all alike to God. It's just like past week events. You are not like him. We are so small, we're so myopic, we're so bound with the immediate moment right before us. Not this God. We are chasing after some blip of a moment in our lives, like some blip in God's eternal week, so to speak, as He looks out over all of history. 
We're so small. We're so limited. We're always in a hurry, always pressing, always rushing, always striving not to be late. We're always trying to meet deadlines. We're always trying to show up on time. God is not like this at all. He's eternal. And it's true, He's not like this. His eternal nature, in a way, you might say, provides a patience that we can't afford. See, our clock's always ticking and running out. Verse 5. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. Their memory, the memory of the past generations, is like a dream. You know the great relief it is to wake up from a nightmare and to realize, oh, it was all just a dream. I didn't murder that guy. I wasn't being chased. I wasn't falling from a building. I wasn't being drowned. It was just a dream. It's over. It wasn't real. You can forget about it. Well, in a way, that's what God, you could say, has done in looking back at the previous generations. They are like a dream, forgotten. Even their tombstones that mark their burial places, say like at the oldest cemetery and graves in Hollywood Cemetery, the names have rubbed away. They're illegible. Anonymous reminders that every man dies and will be forgotten. Such that no one can even remember his name. And even before our death, Moses goes on, the ride of our life itself It's quite short as it is. Continuing on about the morning grass, verse 6, he says, In the morning, it the grass flourishes and is renewed. And then in the very same evening, it fades and withers. He's saying, that's us. You're here one morning, you're gone the next. By evening, you're spent, you're expired, you're gone. No one lives long. All soon will everyone be gone. Now, that's true, some sooner than others, but we don't know when that is. All will be gone but God. He abides. He is the eternal constant. We are not like Him. Well, that turns then to the next question. Why? Why is life so short? Why has it been cut off? What explains why life is so brief? Why does it need to be this way? It's certainly not because God's power is limited. We've been talking a lot about that. If God desired, He could give us long life. So what gives? Well, you need to recognize here in verses 7 to 11 that it's God's wrath that ends you. It's His wrath for your sin that cuts you off. Moses could not be more clear. Look at verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. Death is not then simply just part of the cycle of life. It's the move of God to put a sinner to death. It's His wrath, His just furor at our guilt that rightly should disturb us and dismay us and terrify us. It's His justice that ends our lives. That's why we die. That's why our lives are cut short. Listen to verses 8 and 9. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh, a groan, 
a whimper, really. And it's our sins that account for all of this. This is why we die. This is why we're put to death. Because it is right that we die. It's just for the sins we have done. And that's the way it always has been, ever since our father Adam. Remember, he was told in the garden, right? To eat of all of the trees of the garden but one. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And ever since he took a bite, what has happened? One out of one people die. Now, the very clever Bible students among us, especially the children, go, well, what about Enoch? He didn't die. What about Elijah? Good point. Let's do this. One out of one people die and put a little asterisk next to it. However, understand this. Those exceptions are pretty rare, as all of the other scores of tombs, crypts, cemeteries, and funerals testify. That is, their exception is statistically insignificant. And trust me, because this is what you might want to be thinking, you're no exception. You will die. Death is coming for you. Now, at times, that can be hard for us to believe. We don't want to believe it. We actually find any kind of reason to not believe it that, that, that doesn't apply to us. There's a new cure coming. I've heard about it. There's some new treatment. There's some vaccine. There's some cancer treatment. I know this is one's going to work. Besides, look at all of our progress. People are living longer and longer, right? Well, did you hear the latest news about the life expectancy in the United States? It experienced its sharpest decline over the last 100 years. The average American's now tapping out at 76 years old. And that seems like a long time, 76 years, especially when you're 16. But ancient people, if circumstances were very favorable, they would live this long at times. Moses, who we hear from, he lived to be 120. Look at verse 10. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Even if you beat the average, the years of your life still run out one day or another. And truth be told, as Moses tells it here, whatever life that is, it seems like, especially toward the end, it's not so hot anyway. He says, the span of your life is but toil and trouble. It's not all great. Things break down, you break down, you don't bounce back, not to mention the sin that dogs us all along the way every step to the grave. That can be very dark days approaching death. And then, as he says at the end of verse 10, we fly away. We're gone. It's like seeing an amazing hawk on a branch. You call to your children, oh, come look at this, the hawk's gone. It's fly away. You see it in the distance. And it's like it was never there. We are like that. Here a moment, gone the next, as if we were never there. And why? Because of our sins. That's why. We are sinners worthy of death. Look at 11, verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who knows these truths? Who thinks about them? Who ponders them? Who puts them into their heart. People are put to death because God hates sin. That's why. That's why people die. We try and avoid this, forget this altogether. It's evidenced as a 
I heard someone bring up, instead of somber funerals, what do we have? We have celebrations of life services instead of funerals. And that's fine. It's good to celebrate a life. But it's also good to mourn. If life is so good, why does God take it away? Why do people, why does everyone die? Why? Because you and them and I, we are all rebels against a holy God. That is why. Actually, it's good to have a somber, quiet, sad funeral. Because it's good to mourn the loss of a loved one that's never coming back. And it's good to weep for ourselves that we too one day will be where they are. We will die. It will all be over. We'll leave everyone behind. That death, you see, then, ushers us into the presence of this judge who caught us and put us to death and killed us. Are you ready to meet him this moment? Or do you keep trying to put off thoughts about death? Just like I put off, I can wash my car another day. It's not that dirty. Nobody's going to see it. I'm busy enough today. Or, you told me I got 80 years. I got time. But of course, you don't know how many are your days. And what's very clear from this text, what your sin makes very clear, God owes you not one more second of time. Well, what are we supposed to do with that? You need to turn to that God, your judge, for mercy. You need to beg him for mercy, that he might establish you and establish you forever. Verses 12 to 17. See, this is where the psalm turns. He's been reflecting on these truths about God's eternality, our frailty, and our sin. But then it is, well, what are we to do about it? What happens now? And the word from Moses is, repent and run to this God. Run to him as your shelter. Run to him as your refuge and saving place. Call out to him. Beg him. And that's what Moses does. Here from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, it is just request after request. Oh God, do something. And the first one is teach us, oh God. Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. God, we need you to teach us. Because verse 11, he poses and ponders the question. You see it there, verse 11? Who considered, or more literally, in the Hebrew, who knows the power of your anger according to the fear of you? Who knows and understands these things? Well, in verse 12, he's saying, God, teach us. Or more literally in the Hebrew, cause us to know. Bring us to understand the number of our days. That the days are running out. That we're very limited. That we're defined. We have an end and it's coming soon. Now, why should we number our days? So we can be intentional with our lives? So we can maximize our time in this life? Sort of, but not exactly. There's something more here. What should happen? What does he say? Teach us to number our days, and what would be the result? That we may get a heart of wisdom. It's to make us wise. Well, what does wisdom look like? Well, foremost in the biblical sense, it does not necessarily look like, meaning being most industrious or most efficient or most opportunistic, Taking advantage, being most productive with this such limited time? No, that's not the point. What is wisdom, biblically speaking? Here's what wisdom is. 
Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You need to count your days so that you would then start to fear God. Knowledge and wisdom begins with knowing God, fearing God, bowing and humbling yourself before this God. Wisdom comes to know that your whole life is lived before the face of this God. So reckon with Him now, run to Him now, while He offers you mercy. This is why our days have been given to us. And that's right where Moses turns next with the next request there in verse 13. We have to turn back to God to draw near to Him. Verse 13, he says in praise, You return, O Lord, literally, O Yahweh, How long have mercy on your servants or have pity on your servants? I love this because as he counts his days, he fears God because of judgment, but then he runs right back to God. Why? Because he knows what God is like. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God hates sin. But God's also a refuge and a dwelling place and a home for sinners. He knows what God's like. And I think it stands out because in verse 13, it's the first time you hear the name of God mentioned. Oh, Yahweh, the Lord, all caps. That was the God he met in the burning bush. And as we'll see it, Lord willing, someday in Exodus when we get there. It's the God he's going to meet on Mount Sinai. You remember when he gets hit in the rock and the Lord God passes by? And what did Moses hear? Because I bet you he remembered it at this moment. What did he hear? He heard this. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And probably in the Hebrew there, it's not thousands of people, but thousands of generations. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Why does he run to God? Because he knows what the Lord is like. He knows he's abounding in mercy to any who call upon him. And furthermore, he still cries out, verses 14 and 15. So then satisfy us. Fill us up in the morning with your steadfast love. You said we're here in the morning and the evening we're gone. Well, take the morning and fill us up with your love. Put that on our mind. Impress it on our heart. Fill us up with it that we might rejoice and be glad all our days. Even the end of them. Because we know we will then be with you. Make us glad as many as are the days you've afflicted us. Verse 15. As many as the years we've seen evil. In other words, he's appealing to The Lord who's made promises and keeps them. He says, are we not your people? Have you not committed to be faithful? Let us rejoice and be glad in you. Because there's no greater hope or joy that this world can offer. Why? Because you're eternal and that all passes away. No pleasure of this world will satisfy for very long. You understand that? They all fade away. There's no person. There's no promotion. There's no accomplishment. There's no other so-called security. They are all passing away, every single one, just like we are. But he will not. And if he doesn't pass away, and if he doesn't change us, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, neither does his steadfast love. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Are you starting to get a glimpse of the greatness of this God? Finally, then, Moses prays, verses 16 and 17. 
for God to establish the work of his hands. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, O oh God, establish the work of your hands. And we want to build something. We want to make something that lasts, don't we, that matters? So then the request comes to God, show us what to do. Show us what we should be working at, getting at. And more than that, may your power show to make it last, because we can't do that. We know that. And so we have to then pause for a moment and look at our life and say, what is my life building? You might say, oh, I know what my life's supposed to be building, but what am I investing my life in? What is the work that you're putting your hands to do? Is it the Lord's work? Because understand, if it's not, it's not going to last. It's like the analogy that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 3, when he talks about our life work being tested by fire. And there are many whose life work will not stand the test. He says there are many who will be, whose life work will be burned up. He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And really then their whole life went up gone, wasted. A few days on earth amounted to nothing. Well, then you can see then back to Moses' prayer. We need to know, God, what the work is we need to be doing. What is your work that will last? What is then, what's the Lord working? What is he building? And Paul speaks to it in 1 Corinthians 3 because he's talking about his building of the church, the very temple of God. Or more clearly, we know from Matthew's gospel from our study through that for a few years. What did Jesus say he was building? He said, I will build my church. Is that not his work that will last? Well, how do we build his church? Now, there are many facets and parts to that. Of course, it means sharing the gospel, just evidently. It means speaking the good news to wandering souls, that they might find mercy with Christ, that they might too become a living stone built on the foundation that is Jesus for an eternity. But also that means for you, in your individual life, living faithfully like Christ, obeying Him, following Him, and do whatever roles and responsibility He's entrusted to you and called you to in His eternal Word. What are we talking about? Being a faithful son and daughter. Being a faithful husband that loves Jesus, that loves his wife more than himself. Being a faithful mother or father to love and to care even when it's really hard. To discipline in the admonition and instruction of the Lord. Being a faithful worker, not a man pleaser, but wanting to please the Lord. Being a conscientious and fair boss that really cares for those under him. Because you understand, we saw this in Colossians this summer. All of life comes under the Lordship of Christ. But of course, it means in building up the church. That's how we build the church. You strengthen your brothers and sisters to love and obey Christ, just like we just talked about in all those roles and responsibilities. To make much of Christ being faithful to Him before a watching world. Now, admittedly, as the world sees it, they're not going to care a whole lot. It's not going to get much of their attention. Not like running for Congress or winning elections or starting companies. But honestly... None of those things will last. They won't. 
But our eternal God sees all that's done for him, and it lasts as long as he does. He will not get any that is done for the name of Christ. Only what is done for Christ will last. And that's why Paul can say at the end of that marvelous chapter 15 in Corinthians, he's talking about the resurrection, and he ends it like this when he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well, let me just ask, and it's great preparation for this table. Why do we know our labor for the Lord is not in vain? How do we know that our works done for Him will be established, that they will last? The answer is found in what he talks about just before this. It's true, yes, that death ends our life. Yes, it's true that death becomes to us because of our sin. But it's also true for all those in Christ, death is not the last word. Here's what he says. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our risen and eternal Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and conquered them and slayed death to death. He overcame all of our sins and death itself to live again. And so then forevermore, he is the eternal God, and he gives eternal life to all that come to him, that too for us, not only for him, but death would not be the last word. Actually, the last word is life eternal before our God. But that's only because of Christ and what this table represents, his death for us and the resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Establish, O oh God, the work of our hands. O oh God, establish the work of our hands.